Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand and affirm the promise that relates to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name and allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights unreachable to us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in the service be cursed as before all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies, all forms of fears, depression, destruction, covetousness, ignorance, all of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people and stand, Lord, in the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness. And may your saints be clothed in your salvation, and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and allow us to find your holy countenance. I present this service to your divine arms. Guide them with your uplifted hand, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
Thank you. 
so as always before we begin to be immersed in the depth of our inheritance our pure inheritance necessary the necessary place of scripture that we have made as the pinpoint of our study is Luke chapter 24 verse 44 then he said to them these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and psalms concerning me and so in order for us as the partakers of the body of Christ to divide with all him all that was written of him we will continue our study in the direction of our cooperation with the Holy Spirit and what we must do on our end so that we receive the right to set aside our former way of life so that we could be clothed in a new way of life. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22-24 That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. For the fulfillment of this commandment, there are three basic commands and verbs. This is to set aside, to renew, and to clothe. We have noted that answering these fateful questions will affect whether we turn ourselves into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath, or rather, will we perfect the salvation that is given to us in the format of a deposit, or will we waste it? because of which our names would forever be blotted out of the book of life. So, as we have just sung right now, we will affirm our calling. It is good to sing. We do not hide our calling. What is a calling? A calling is that truth that is unveiled to you. As a Christian, we receive the revelation. Many Christians who receive a revelation of the truth, they are scared to reveal it among their peers because these peers, they don't understand this revelation. They consider it a heresy. And many Christians hide it. And Scripture says, make your calling firm and doing so you will never stumble but we do not make our calling firm if we do not proclaim the faith of our heart the truth that we have received then what do we do? we give God the opportunity to place a stumbling block before us and a devil an opportunity to place a stumbling block and in this manner we stumble our eyes dim our ears cannot hear and our heart becomes stiff and we will not notice that we will begin to turn away from God. And in a certain format, we have already examined the first two important questions and we have stopped to study the third question. What conditions must we fulfill so that through our renewed thinking we could begin the process of clothing ourselves into the powers of our new man who is created by God in Christ Jesus in the righteousness and holiness of truth? 
I understand those people of few past generations of Apostle Paul who wrote these revelations a magnificent truth that he could not quite reach. And it is written that they had died in faith, not receiving what was promised. They continued to believe, and with this faith they had died, but they were unable to clothe themselves in this truth because time had not come yet. And we know the reason. Therefore, in relation to clothing ourselves in the powers of a new man who contains the powers of the resurrection of Christ, we came to a conclusion that in order to take off our old man and to be clothed in the spirit of our mind and be clothed in the new man, we need the help of God in the virtue of His redemptive mercy. And the means for accepting this kind of help expressed in the inheritance of God's mercies is the weapon of prayer and worship in spirit and truth. Not a simple prayer, a simple worship, but worship in spirit and truth that belongs only to kings and priests. Those people who have not reached this virtue, although they were born in the family of kings and priests, they cannot yet worship in spirit and truth. They cannot yet enter into the presence of the Lord. Because, yes, he, is a, he was born in the home of priests, and he is taught for 30 years, and only after 30 years, only after specific dedication, he can enter. But before this, before this time, he has no right to enter before the presence of God and he cannot worship in spirit and truth. Furthermore, we have noted that this kind of prayer that can occur in spirit of truth is not just a means of relationship between God and man, but it is the right that is the weapon that brings to action the legislature of God that a person gives for the interference of God on earth. So we need to know the legislature of God. We need to know the boundaries in which you can practice this legislature. You need to receive a revelation how, when to practice this legislature. If a person doesn't know, how can he pray with this kind of prayer? All that he can pray is, Lord, Lord, please forgive me, I'm a sinner. As I have said before, I left the assembly where I was, where I grew up, and I came to a different city. And after many years, I just returned there as a guest. And I was given a word. And when I began to speak about how the blood of the Christ works, that if it washed you, and if you in the morning prayed and said, Lord, forgive me for this and that, I accept your forgiveness, then when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to say, Lord, forgive me. You accepted that the Lord forgave you. The whole congregation was crying. The, the one who was the pastor, he was scared. He came out and he said, well, this is not good, brothers and sisters. This is not good. Why are you crying, Brother Akadi is speaking? You're crying. We tell you the same thing. Why are you crying? Yes, good. But when you say, when you get up in the morning, Lord, forgive me again and again, you will not lose or you will not fail. This is how he understood it, and that's why people cried. Well, how do we? How how much do we say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me? Can we finally be forgiven, justified? 
Can we finally look upon him, pray to him, bless him? Or do we always say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and I, you have, you can't raise your head because your head is always bowed. These people who preach these things, they, when they had died, people thought that they were heading to heaven, but when in fact many of them were in fact headed to hell. I knew some Episcopals, I knew them very near and very dearly, and before death, before death, to them it was it was unveiled where they were going, and it is rare that God does this, that he reveals before death. And this Episcopal began to panic, he called his friends and he said, I was going to hell. One of the brothers came, a pastor came to me scared, he said, listen, this Episcopal, our friend went to hell, and I and I told him, I, how are you going to hell? And he's telling me, I'm, I'm not saved. He was, he was scared, and he was asking me, what do we do if he's going to hell? Where are we going? But I understood why this person was going to hell, because he did not walk before God. He knew the truth, but he did not affirm his calling. And he looked at me, and he said, this is... This is, Brother Akadi, you, you speak the truth and you don't look at who is standing before you. You speak the truth. And I, and I told him, this is true, this is the word of God. Am I supposed to... The reason, I said, to stop walking before people, you have, you know the truth, but as soon as he saw these people, he began to fear them and have trepidation. But when I saw those people, I became a lion, and they trembled before me, and literally, I was just a simple person among the congregation. Episcopals, when they came to our church, they came to my home, and they trembled, and then they shared. Well, this person has some courage, knowledge. This person is dangerous for us. He knows scripture way too well. For people who know scripture, they were dangerous to them. They needed foolish people because they could control these foolish people. It is impossible to control a person who sees, who is not blind. They, they would preach and say, I am the pastor where I lead you, you, may, you have to go. We will study and we are continuing to study one of the prayers of David that is written in the 143rd Psalm, which, where David gives God the right to interfere in his life with his mercy and truth, and it will be an example for us of our inheritance and our prayer. This psalm has become the study of our of our service. Let us look at its beauty, its depth. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications, and your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of the old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. 
Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. And so according to this prayer, we have already noted that the reason for this prayer being released was due to a certain category of enemies that resisted David. And they resist us as well. This is, first of all, our own flesh. It is personified sin that is not just the program of sin, but it is the program of sin that is inside of us as a program device and personified death. And to be heard by God, as well as us, it was necessary for David to present God a foundation or a right that could serve for God as proof that he could interfere in David's life with his mercy and truth. And from David's perspective, this kind of proof in this prayer, as we have already noted, it contained ten different arguments that David brought to God saying, hear me because of your righteousness and truth. Hear me because I remember the days of the old and all of your works. Hear me because I spread out my hands to you. Hear me because I trust in you. Hear me because I lift up my soul to you. We can lift up our soul only upon the altar to bring ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Hear me, because I lift up my soul to you. Hear me, for I run to you. Hear me, because you are my God. Hear me for your name. Hear me for your mercy, and hear me because I am your servant. These ten arguments are components. They do not work without one another. And they, in unique balance, create create one, create a unity. In the previous sermons, we have already examined the nature of the first argument that gave God the legal right to stand on David's behalf. This was evidence brought by David in prayer that showed that he remembered the days of the old and all the works of God in these days, written on the tablets of our heart. We have ta- stopped to study the second argument. He meditated upon his, the works of God. An image of this evidence is presented in the breastplate of judgment of the high priest, which was a standard for a constant memorial before God, containing the standard of a constant prayer. And this breastplate of judgment was made for and served only one object. It was the cooperation between Urim and Thummim, the presence of which allowed God to hear man, and it allowed man to hear God. So, the truth of the teaching of Christ and the Holy Spirit, this is 
Urim and Thummim. And so to be heard by God in the revelations of his Urim, it was necessary so for God to unveil us with his Holy Spirit, it was necessary to maintain a remembrance of the works of God in the subject of his Thummim, which is the teaching of Jesus Christ. The breastplate of judgment as a subject of a continual prayer before God is a sacred image of the format of a continual prayer. And no other prayer is a weapon bringing to action the legislature of God on earth. And so a prayer that does not meet the requirements and characteristics of a breastplate of judgment does not have a right to be called a prayer, a prayer of a king and a priest, but only the prayer of Hagar, it can be called. Therefore, a person who prays with this kind of prayer, if he does not have because only the format of a continual prayer presented in the breastplate of judgment of the high priest gives us the right to come to God and enter his sanctuary as kings and priests to present an intercession that pursues the interests of his will. In the Septuagint, which is called our translation of the Bible, the breastplate of judgment is called a sign of justice because through the Urim and Thummim that are contained in the breastplate of judgment, God could communicate his judgment to man. The image of the breastplate of judgment finds its expression in the conscience of man that is cleansed from dead works, on the tablets of which, as well as the seal, is the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. Each name contained one of the teachings of Christ, and it was also one of the names of the Lord. A conscience that is cleansed from dead works with the seal on the tablets of truth and righteousness will yield the nature of true worshippers who will give God the right to act in them and through them on planet Earth. In a certain form, we have already looked at the measurements and the material out of which the breastplate of judgment was to be made. We have stopped to look at the next condition, which states in Exodus 28, 17-21, You shall put settings of stones in it, on the breastplate of judgment, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, topaz, and an emerald. The second row, a carbuncle, sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and amethyst. The fourth row, a chrysolite, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. We have noted that these twelve golden settings is the word of God in the teaching of Jesus Christ that we as worshippers of God are called to represent in our continual prayer and the twelve precious stones with the engravings of markings of the twelve names of the sons of Israel is an image of our prayer that represent the perfect judgments of God. From this we conclude that the golden settings in the subject of truth of the word of God are engraved to fit the stones.
Not the golden settings are engraved to fit the stones, but rather the stones and the subject of our prayers are engraved to fit the measurements and configurations of the golden settings of truth. When we pray, before we speak a sentence, we need to make sure it coincides with the will of God, to make sure that we are praying correctly. And of course, when we begin to say this, people say, that's it, now I can't pray at all. Before I prayed somehow, but now I can't pray at all. I said, well, good thing that you came to this conclusion. This means that even before you couldn't pray, you just satisfied yourself with your own prayer. But this prayer did not reach God. Sometimes it may have you may think that it reached God and that He answered you, but He did not because He did not pray, pray according to the will of God. And if an answer did come, and you prayed not according to the will of God, then it came not from above, but from below. And what came from below, you began to thank devil as God, because he gave you either his, or an opportunity to earn. You might think, devil can't do these things. Yes, he can. We can't we can't judge that God has healed us if we are healed. We need to judge according to the word. If our teaching is incorrect and we receive something, we receive it not from God. Because devil will provide many wonders and miracles, very great ones. And many will be seduced. We have noted that continual prayer is an unceasing prayer. It's the most strongest kind of prayer that represents the interests of God in His intercessory and does not step away from the goal until He receives what He has asked for. The makeup of the breastplate of judgment in our heart is presented in the tree of life, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is in you. This tree of life, we are supposed to grow out of this seed to a level where it could bring fruit, and then we can be clothed in this fruit. The tree of life represents our new man, the kingdom of heaven in us. Growing the tree of life in our heart is building ourselves into the new man, created by God in righteousness and holiness of truth, into a spiritual dwelling, a holy place. We have noted that all of the grandeur and order of the temple was made for one holy object, and it served only one holy object, the golden ark of the covenant. The same way the ephod of the high priest with the breastplate of judgment was created and served only one holy object, which was to exactly double and fulfill the actions, functions of the golden ark, so is Urim and Thummim. Because the golden ark of the covenant and the breastplate of judgment figuratively represented the conscience of a person that has been cleansed from dead works. Uriman Thumim in Hebrew means light and perfection, light and right, or revelation and truth. For example, the Decalogue placed inside of the ark of the covenant was truth, and this truth was presented in the breastplate of judgment as Thumim. And the revelation that a person could receive under the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was presented the breastplate of judgment as Urim, or the Holy Spirit. Therefore, a worshiper of God can only be a person who has a conscience that is cleansed from dead works, or has a wise heart, on the tablets of which is sealed the truth in the subject of the meme. Thummim. 
If you have the half-truth in your heart, what will the Holy Spirit do when He enters in your heart? He will not enter in the first place if there is the half-truth. He cannot do anything in this half-truth. He needs the truth. He needs the full boundaries, the legislature of God in which He could act and through which He can open the, the truth of God for us. I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they make all that I have commanded you. Exodus. God found people in Israel who were built, who built the tabernacle. These people were numbered in the literal sense. And upon them fell the Holy Spirit. And somehow the Holy Spirit prepared them. And all that Moses spoke, they accepted in their heart. And there, when the Holy Spirit, Urim, came and unveiled for them how to build a tabernacle. Because this was a great artisan made of great from great order, and oftentimes people think a tent is a, a tent, the tabernacle is a tent in the desert. They forget that wilderness or the desert in scripture is just an empty place. It doesn't mean there were no trees there. If there if it was a wilderness or an actual desert, where would they have gotten the trees to build this tabernacle? Because it said take the uh, gopher wood and build an ark. If there was indeed a desert, where would they have gotten the wood? There was, there were plants there, there were trees there. The word wilderness or desert, yes, it means sand, but it also means an empty place. But God did not command that amid the sun, the scorching sun, the tabernacle to be built. God found a place. How he found how he met with Adam in the cool of day among the trues, he found a place with the people of God where he could communicate with them. And do you remember when they were walking along wilderness, they found 70 fig trees. It doesn't mean that there were only, only these kind of trees. There were other trees as well. And so in a certain format, we have already examine the first five properties of a worshiper of God through whom God can continually express and fulfill His will on planet Earth. We have stopped to examine the sixth component of a worshiper expressed on the breastplate of judgment. This is the precious diamond stone. The sixth name on the second row from the bottom that was engraved on the precious stone of the breastplate of judgment on the tablets of our heart was the name of the sixth son of Jacob, Naphtali, meaning wrestler. Genesis 37-8 says, And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. The name of God in the precious diamond stone, according to Jewish rabbis in Hebrew, means Elhai, which translated to Russian, will mean living God. Therefore, according to the meaning of the name Naphtali and the precious diamond stone, we know that the function of the sixth principle laid as the foundation of our constant prayer with which we need to serve as a continual memorial before God. It is our ability to allow the Holy Spirit to be with us in prayer battle against the powers of darkness that go against us fulfilling the will of God, the name of the living God. We do not need to ask, Holy Spirit, help me. We need to allow Him. He is with us and He wants to pray with us. He Himself wants this and He prays and He is ready. But for this, we must present Him a foundation. Also on the foundation of what will He pray with us? If our prayer does not coincide with Thumim, the will of God, He cannot pray with us. 
How do we allow Him to pray with us? As soon as you pray according to the will of God, the Holy Spirit will join you. Nowhere you will find that you need to turn to the Holy Spirit to pray by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit. He is sent as a comforter, as a counselor, as a helper who will help reveal to us the power of the Word and the will of God. But people don't understand this. And they begin to pray to the Holy Spirit and praise the Holy Spirit. But He does not accept this praise. Why are you praising Him? This is the same thing as saying something to a blind or singing to Him. He doesn't hear it. The Holy Spirit does not have a characteristic in Him that could present, that could accept glory. The Son of God is the Holy Spirit praises the Father and the Son. His interests, He represents the interests of God and the Father. It's very interesting who God has sent to us as a helper. This figure who represents not His interests, but He says from the name of God and the Heavenly Father, God and the Son, and He represents their interests. He does not represent His own interests. Therefore, he can be, he can be offended. He, he does. The father and the son have the ability to defend themselves. If the father and son do not protect the Holy Spirit, he cannot be protected from offenses. When he is with us, he hopes that we will protect him. But we, but we protect him when the truth is laughed at and we stand for the truth then we protect the Holy Spirit but and the and these laughs and this persecution is going against us because the recompense that falls upon God falls upon us the reproaches that fall upon God come upon us we have already talked about this before the Lord is a true God he is a living God and the everlasting king at his wrath the earth will tremble nations will not be able to endure his indignation Jeremiah 10.10 the name of the living God was the format of an oath and that category of the holy nation that did not learn how to swear by the name of the living God and swore to him falsely they were headed to total annihilation this is in Jeremiah chapter 12 verses 16 through 17 if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation. If they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by name as the Lord lives, they will be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. And so in order to not be eradicated and destroyed by the wrath of the living God, it is necessary to be taught the ways of the nation of God to swear by the name of God, El Hai, or Living God. And these paths are the paths of the commandments and statutes of God. The condition that gives the right to be taught the paths and statutes so that we can swear by the name of the Living God is the desire of their knowledge. Whoever desires, come to me. Whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. Drink. If a person does not desire, he is just curious, a person will not receive a revelation because a curious mind can receive a PhD in theology, master's degree. 
but he will not know God nor Scripture because he has only one desire of his heart. Oftentimes, we're bringing up an example. A professor who is dried up, he is soon to die, he studies, he, he studies milk, its different components, the different properties and components of it. And a child by him Health is healthy because he drinks this milk. He doesn't know what it's made out of. He lives by it. He is healthy. But this professor knows what it is made of, but he cannot But he cannot drink this milk because he studies it in such a way that he thinks it's unhealthy for him. And, and for the elderly, yes, it can be for them not healthy. Milk is healthy. Milk of cows is healthy only up until a certain point. After 40, 50, it might not be healthy. Yes, it could be dangerous. Any doctor can tell you this. Therefore, the Bible says, at this time, you were supposed to, um, when you were that age, drink goat's milk and the milk of butter. It is written in Scripture. These things that are said, it is not just a food to eat, but it is medicine. And people who drink goat milk, and they're elderly, they're healthy. They don't need to take some kind of antibiotics, probiotics, because they already have these probiotics. But we look at these products and we turn our noses away thinking that goat's milk smell. Give at least your children goat's milk since you don't drink it yourselves. Let us continue. Let us look at the place of Scripture, Psalms 119.32-35. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. For I delight in it. And we know that the name living in relation to God means dwelling, great, unlimited in power, determining our being, creator of our being, con containing our being, preserving our being, overlooking over our being, and the Lord of our being. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20-21. It talks about when a person can swear by the name of the living God. You shall fear the Lord your God. So, when we have the fear of the Lord. Continuing. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast, when we hold fast. And take oaths in his name. Take a look. All of this is listed for us. We cannot, you cannot swear by the name of the living God unless you fear him, unless you serve him, unless you hold fast to him and take oaths in his name. He is your, continuing, he is your praise and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. The power of a warrior of prayer that is contained in the virtue of the name of the living God are called to represent the limitless authority of God over our being and in the time and limits allotted to us. We have arrived at the need to define what purpose God is pursuing when He calls His children to become warriors of prayer, as well as how and under what conditions can God give a person the right to become a warrior of prayer so that a person could represent the interests of God in the realization of His inheritance in God to be clothed into the new man. According to revelations from Scripture, our prayer and the quality of a warrior of prayer 
yielded by the virtues of a diamond are supposed to be unceasing or continual, perseverant, diligent, with boldness, reverential, with showing faith to God, with thanksgiving, with joy, in the fear of the Lord, in the Holy Spirit, over prayer and tongues. In previous sermons, in a certain format, we have already looked at seven signs of a continual prayer and have stopped to study the eighth sign. This is fruit of joy. We have noted that the fruit of joy in the heart defines the state of the heart of a warrior of prayer, as well as the quality of his prayer. As it is written, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Proverbs 12:22. Therefore, one of the signs with which we should define the presence of an earthly joy will be a joyful heart that will serve as medicine for a person, healing and restoring his faith and trust in God. The fruit of joy says that we must receive it as a seed and then grow it into a fruit. A broken spirit is an image of a stiff-necked heart guided by his pride and unrenewed mind which lacks an atmosphere of unearthly joy. This deprives God of the basis to heal a person. In this place of scripture, Proverbs 12.22, the word broken spirit means broken means stiff-necked. If you looked in another place of spirit broken, it will just mean it will just mean um, somber. There are different meanings of this word in different places of scripture. One is David says, "And my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My spirit is broken. Why? Because he desires. When a person desires, he is broken, but his." his heart is not stiff-necked. What this is talking about, a kind of broken spirit that is the result of a, of a stiff-necked heart. There are differences between these definitions of broken. They have different actions from this same word. One creates life, the other creates death results in death. And this broken spirit deprives God of the basis to heal a person. And this is how Apostle Jude summarized his short letter to the Church of Christ by notating joy in a certain rank as part of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding or unblemished in joy. We have noted that a blemish in joy is a lack of a foundation that will keep us from stumbling to present us faultless before the presence of his glory. And the glory of God abides in the atmosphere of unblemished joy and is an expression of unblemished joy. Blemish and joy is a spot that yields uncleanliness, malice, and lies. A person who is not free from this blemish cannot be allowed to enter in, he in heaven, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Defining the vessel of unearthly joy and its natural characteristics, we came to the conclusion that the definitions of the essence and purpose of unblemished joy in prayer will be a direct result of the fact that this kind of joy can only become can only come from a pure person. These three components, the thought, the word, the action, 
If you say that you have correct thinking and correct words and actions, then how come your clothes are incorrect? How come you defend incorrect clothing that is wickedness and malice before God? When men or women dress in a way to call out the, the sexual instincts of the opposite gender, this is malice before the Lord. These people are not supposed to be in the temple of God. During my times, uh, a person who would be who would lack clothing would not be allowed to enter into the church. And if this girl, this woman, were to have been seen outside, she would be excommunicated, even if she's not in the church she would be excommunicated. But today, these people are defended. They think it's okay that we are living in this kind of time. What kind of time are you living in? You're living in the end times. That's why. Dress as you should be, as saints should be. Dress appropriately. All those who dress incorrectly, all of your singing, all your praise to God is uncleanliness. I understand there's different kinds of clothing. We're talking about one and the other here. If your clothing if you say that you are you have the thoughts of God and you speak the words of God but you are dressed incorrectly, you are lying to yourself and you have an outward appearance of godliness but do not have it inwardly. We must distinguish earthly and order, or ordinary joy from supernatural joy, which has its distinctive roots in God, its source in God, and its origin in God. The two kinds of joy are two programs that come from different vessels, from God and the fallen cherubim. The heart of a person is a program device, and the kind of joy that a person favors clothes him and it begins to rule in his essence. And if we give preference to earthly joy, then it, on one hand, will measure our relationship with God, and on the other hand, it will suppress unearthly joy. If we prefer the joy that comes from above, then it will also measure our relationship with God. Because of its supernatural abilities, it is impossible to test unearthly joy without feeling it in our physical abilities. Because apart from earthly joy, it is not an emotion or feeling that betters or increases a mood. Supernatural joy is a discipline of the mind and heart that creates peace in the heart of a person and balances, controls, and leads over feelings. And when this unearthly joy leads our emotions, it in the beginning it is not joyful. It is undergoing. It does not want to be obeyed, but when our emotions are obey our unearthly joy, it, like a horse, looks at its rider and it begins to obey. Therefore, supernatural joy or unblemished joy in prayer is a proclamation of the faith of the heart that proclaims who God is for us in Christ Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. 
as well as who we are for God and what we must do to inherit all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This kind of proclamation of the faith of heart is equal to the power of the words that come from the mouth of God. Turning to the unique wisdom of Scripture and defining unearthly joy, we decided to examine the virtue of unearthly joy in the heart of a person who was born from the unfading seed of the word of truth that abides in Christ. The first source of unearthly joy is God himself, and therefore, God is the standard and measure that yields the properties of unearthly joy. It is also one of God's holy names with which he triumphs over his enemies. Psalms 43, 4-5 Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. So I will come, my soul will not have joy, but I will come to God my exceeding joy, and this is what I will say. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I, sh- for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Basically, this phrase, it contains an oath. The Lord lives before whom I stand. And to define the essence of an earthly joy and the conditions that we must fulfill to unleash its virtue in our prayer, we arrived at four aspects. This is the definition and purpose of the fruit of joy in prayer. It is the price for gaining and releasing the fruit of joy. It is keeping and cultivating the fruit of joy and the fruit and reward received from expressing pure joy in prayer. In a certain format, we have already studied the first three questions. Therefore, we will turn to study the fourth question. According to which signs must we test ourselves to verify that we truly have the fruit of unblemished joy in prayer and not some kind of forgery? I will remind you of the four signs that we have already studied during previous sermons, and then we will turn to studying the fifth sign. The first sign by which we must test ourselves to verify that the fruit of unblemished joy abides in our prayer is according to the presence and enrichment of hope in our heart. The second sign by which we must test ourselves to verify is the ability of our God-given redemption to be freed from dependence on Babylon. The third sign is the, our relationship to the celebrating of Pesach according to the established established by God. And the fourth sign is comprised of having joy and gladness of the heart when we serve God through our voluntary decision to bridle our fear, feelings. The fifth sign by which we must test ourselves to verify that the fruit of unblemished joy abides in our prayer is our love toward righteousness and our hatred toward lawlessness. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Psalms 45, 7. This place of scripture, uh, Apostle Paul mentions in Hebrews as well. In this passage, anointing with the oil of gladness, which refers to anointing with the oil of the Holy Spirit, is a result that comes from the fact that the Son of God, in the virtue of the Son of Man, loved truth and hated lawlessness. We must note that every time in the anointing with the oil of gladness, there was always a joy present that defined the truth about the nature of the Holy Spirit. 
And the basis and purpose of joy was always love toward righteousness and hatred toward lawlessness, which is confirmed by the place of scripture we are studying. Considering that righteousness and lawlessness are simply programs that come from different sources over which stands God and the fallen cherubim, and that these programs without a program device, which is the heart of a person, cannot function, nor can they express themselves, we note that to love righteousness and hate lawlessness is possible only in its carriers, who are people who lead a righteous way of life. God and devil are always in search for these program devices. And do you know where they search for them? Not in the world. Because those people cannot be carriers of a godly program, but only in the church, where there is worship. There, God and devil search for their program devices within the church. God, due to his selective love, which yields his holiness, initially loved his holy righteousness in people and angels, and initially hated lawlessness in people and angels, along with these people and angels themselves. Consequently, carriers of lawlessness, angels who had not saved their dignity, and people who did not accept the love of truth, defiled the sanctuary of the Spirit and left their assembly, they are the vessels of His all-consuming and all-incinerating anger. Whereas the carriers of His holy righteousness who have kept themselves from contact with lawlessness and the carriers of lawlessness are the vessels of His mercy. According to these definitions, in relation to the carriers of the program of righteousness and lawlessness, as well as the oil of gladness that is released and anoints people who love righteousness and hate lawlessness, three questions arise. First, by what criteria must we define righteousness and lawlessness so that we can distinguish them from one another? The second question, in practice, how are we able to love the carriers of righteousness and hate the carriers of lawlessness? And the third question that we must answer, by what criteria must we define and distinguish the authority that anoints us with the oil of godness from the authority of a false anointing? By answering these three questions, we will receive the opportunity to test ourselves to see if we have the fruit of unearthly joy in our heart. And so the first question, by what criteria must we define righteousness and lawlessness so that we can distinguish them from one another? And before we distinguish righteousness from lawlessness, we will need to remember the criteria with which the scripture endows the carriers of righteousness as well as the carriers of lawlessness who violate the law of righteousness. We will study the program of the law of righteousness in a program device which is the good heart of a person in whom righteousness turns into a format of justification. And in this manner, gives person the foundation opportunity to become righteous so that he could fulfill righteousness or express righteousness in his thoughts, words, action, and clothes, in his garments. In other words, to be a true carrier of righteousness. I will remind you that every truth as well as every word in scripture is multifaceted and has many meanings. Because of this, the etymology of the words righteousness as truth, justification, righteous, and righteousness in Hebrew contain a very rich meaning, and they reveal to us who God is for us and what God has done for us, as well as who we are for God and what we must do to inherit all that God has done for us. 
For example, Hebrew definition of righteousness or truth is Justification is belonging to the heritage of God through the redemption of Jesus Christ and not in the 2 Corinthians 5.17-19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The biblical definition of righteous is a person who was holy and pure, who walks before God, who has died for sin and lives for truth. Habakkuk 2.4 Noah walked before the Lord. Genesis 6.9 Biblical righteousness is the definition of the kingdom of God in the heart of a person which is expressed in the holiness of God and in the justice of God in the boundaries of the law of righteousness. Romans 14, 17 through 18. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Until it is while the kingdom of heaven grows in us and no one can see it when it is a seed people can see the kingdom of heaven in us when we begin to bring fruit we will provide definitions of lawliness also in the heart of a person Numbers, chapter 15, verses 29 through 31. She'll have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is native-born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord, he has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. Everything occurs. Many, devil is not interested in people who do not know God. He wants to become God, and to become God, he tries to enter into the house of God. House of God are people who are born of God. Therefore, he searches only for those kind of people. That's why these two figures, God and devil, they continually work in the church. Well, you might ask, how does devil get here? People bring him in. Some bring in the Lord, some bring in Satan because their hearts are not right before God. Devil has 
access to their heart and therefore they come here and they sit with another person sometimes people come to me and say how come when this brother or sister pray it is unpleasant for me when they pray in tongues because they are in a cult and they have brought devil that's why it is not pleasing to you but you try to renew your spirits and understand that we, all, we, grew, we are growing perhaps this person will see the truth and will make the decision to and tell the devil go away in the name of Jesus Christ I will not submit to you any longer let us take a look at how the word lawlessness is defined in scripture it is defined in Hebrew as a rich semantic as well it is defined as unfaithfulness injustice a lie, deceit, sin provinciality, misconduct wickedness departure from the truth of sanctification, blasphemy, desecration of the shrine, disobedience and opposition to the law of truth, delusion and seduction of the mind, idle and empty words, betrayal of the righteous out of the envy and self-interest. We are currently um, defining the word lawlessness. Insurrection and rebellion against the order established by the law of truth. Irritation and resentment against the law of truth. Crime against the law of truth. Guilt as a consequence of conviction for violating the law of truth. So the feeling of guilt in person because he has violated the law of truth. And the damage done to the law of truth in the heart of man. This is what lawlessness is. And so the second question. In practice, how are we able to love the carriers of righteousness and hate the carriers of lawlessness? Based on the fact that love toward the law of righteousness and hatred toward lawlessness is first and foremost not an emotion, but an action of disobedience and resistance toward the law of righteousness, over which stands the decision of the heart, mind, and will of man that lead the emotional sphere of the soul to follow the decision made. We note that to love the law of righteousness and the carriers of this law means to have fellowship with the carriers of the law of righteousness and the boundaries of the law of righteousness and the conditions of this law. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. But in order to love the commandments, we need to have fellowship with the carriers of righteousness. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. Proverbs 3, 31-32. You see, it turns out that the fellowship defines our love toward the law of God, fellowship with the saints, and hatred toward the law of God is our fellowship with the wicked. And so based on these passages, to be righteous means to have fellowship with the carriers of the law of righteousness with whom God communicates. To hate lawlessness and the carriers of lawlessness means to break off our relationship with these carriers of lawlessness based on the boundaries and conditions found in the law of righteousness. This is what Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians. This is not an emotion to hate or to love. These are actions. This is fellowship. This is an expression who we are friends with. Therefore, we must define do I love the law of God or, God or not? If I say I love the law of God and I am still friends with the wicked who have left us and who go against the truth. And if you say, but these are our former friends. 
former, key word, former. Do you know former means that they are not your friends any longer? Scripture says if they were to be out, if they were ours, they would still be ours. But because they left, they have shown that they are not ours. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? Take a look here at these these different these different comparisons that that Holy Spirit gives through Apostle Paul. That there exists a huge difference between righteousness and lawlessness, and they cannot be yoked together. Righteousness and lawlessness cannot be yoked together. This and we are supposed to see these programs as in the carriers. Continuing, for you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Third question. By what criteria must we define and distinguish the authority that anoints us with the oil of gladness from the authority of a false anointing? We know that the anointing with the oil of gladness meant anointing with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And this anointing from God was only for those people who had love toward the law of righteousness in their heart and hatred toward the violators of the law of righteousness. And this anointing was sent for one purpose, to reveal to man the purpose and power of the law of righteousness that abided in his heart. First John chapter 2, verse 20-27 But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. And so the word anointing in Hebrew means authority on the side of the Lord. When a person has anointing, he has authority. It is authority from the Lord, authority over the inheritance of the Lord, a good share of the Lord, strength to fulfill His calling. It is authority to communicate with God. It is the legal right to call and resort to God. What this we're talking about the definition of anointing, the authority to fulfill our purpose in God, the ability to distinguish between pure and unclean, the ability to obey the law of truth, the ability to judge according to the law of truth, the ability to penetrate and understand the thoughts of the Lord, the ability to distinguish the voice of a man sent by God from the voice of a man set by man. This is what anointing means. We must note that anointing with the oil of gladness in the face of the Holy Spirit could be as powerful as it was only in the limits of the law of righteousness and only when God wanted it. In other words, it was a kind of authority that a person could not use when he wished to do so, when he wished to do so and how he wished to do so, but only when God wished to do so. Christ said, I do only what I hear from my Father. 
I have a lot to say, but I do not do it. I do only what the Father has commanded me. Go into the bath of Siloam and heal this person. Well, maybe God, to it's your glory, it will be it will glorify you if you heal all he says no just heal this one and he says today you will heal only by their faith and he could not do anything according to their unbelief but and God showed him who where how to heal people he let him know the, the father spoke to the son and he let him know who to heal how did he know exactly who to heal Jesus received a revelation from God and he did all that the whole that the father wanted done the father and son did not go in different directions they walked in one directions I saw people, I've seen people who pray for pigs, for penguins, for birds. They bury their pets. They bring a candle into the church. And one time people uh, came to me and said, our friend died. And I thought, truly, their friend died from our church. And I'm a very compassionate person. And I started crying with them. But when I find out that this friend was a parakeet, crying with them I couldn't I couldn't believe what they were saying I asked them how could you bury him he's he's so small and another instance there was a dog people came to me said oh my friend my friend died please have compassion over me and I and I asked what kind of relationship did your friend have with Christ well and she would tell me he would always look at me when I prayed with understanding eyes I was thinking what is going on why are these people clinging to me and I'm crying with them for their parakeets and their dogs God gave redemption not to parakeets and dogs but to man he created man according to his image so the anointing with the oil of gladness was not a solution that was able to give authority to man and protect man outside the limits of the law of righteousness as well as outside of the limits of man's calling and purpose anointing with the oil of gladness was closely related to the dedication of man to some kind of service to which he was called to by God our anointing is directly related to our dedication because it was anointing with the oil of gladness that dedicated man to the service and calling he was called to. We'll take a look. Exodus chapter 40 verses 12 through 15. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron, anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. You shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. Tunics. You shall anoint them and you, as you anointed their father, and they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Take a look. Do you see when anointing was given? When a person was prepared, he was already prepared. And it was given only for a certain service. Not just, just because of that. Oh, anointing. Give us more anointing, more anointing. Based on norms in Scripture, five categories of people were anointed with the oil of gladness. Only prophets, priests, 
kings, those who are leprous and being cleansed of their leprosy, and the Nazarenes with whom the Holy Spirit clothed whom the Holy Spirit clothed in supernatural powers during their dedication. From this we know that prophets were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to speak the prophecies of the Lord. The priests were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to stand as priests before the face of the Lord to fulfill the role of a priest. The kings were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to protect and judge the nation of God by the laws of righteousness. And the leprous were anointed with the oil of gladness to be cleansed from their leprosy. The Nazarenes were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to fulfill their purpose and calling as a Nazarite. Judges chapter 13 verses 24 through 25. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanach Den between Zorach and Eshtol. In the period of the New Testament, these five categories are called to be unchanging components in man that verify and yield the virtue of the disciple of Christ in him. Each of us individually are supposed to have these five different virtues. You will say, what, am I supposed to be leprous too? And what does it mean to be leprosy and to cleanse ourselves from leprosy. Let's take a look. Turning to his disciples, Jesus reminded them that as disciples, they are called to represent his testimony, which contained the above five virtues. Christ was the carrier of these five components. He received the anointing of the Holy Spirit to cleanse from leprosy. And to cleanse from leprosy, he, take, he took it upon himself. And these components were necessary requirements for being anointed with the oil of gladness or to accept the Holy Spirit as Lord. Thanks to the presence of oil of gladness, which verified that status of a disciple of Christ, the disciples were mandated the same power that Christ had, who was a disciple of his Father. So why did Christ have this? Because he had a virtue of a disciple. Take a look, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame. We know that the phrase morning by morning is not a definition of time, but rather a definition of the state of a wise heart that is necessary for the acceptance of every revelation that contains a promise. You can grow a relation not through the death, but through the resurrection. That's why he says, every morning he opens my ear. And this kind of state of the heart is defined in the power and atmosphere of resurrection that is present in the heart, which became possible only thanks to the presence of the state of death in the heart. And so, to awaken our ear to hear as one who learns points to the fact that the ability of the heart of the disciple to hear or obey the revelation of the Holy Spirit depends on the transformation of the heart out of the death 
and into the state of resurrection. And the reason that prompted God to raise up his resurrection and the death of the Son of Man so that he could hear like one who learns were five components that we stated above that verified his status and virtue as a disciple. And so let's at least quickly look at the essence of these five components thanks to which God receives the basis to anoint us with the oil of gladness or send us the Holy Spirit not just as our comforter and counselor but as our guide to, to eternal life or the bosom of our Heavenly Father as our Lord and Ruler. We know that the virtues we are studying are not meant to follow in a specific order. They are in complete balance with one another and they verify the truth of one another. And so let us, let us begin with prophets. Prophets who were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to speak the prophecies of the Lord. And according to the norms of Scripture, we know that every person who partakes of the body of Christ can prophesy in proportion to the faith which God gave him after he was anointed with the oil of gladness or after he had accepted the Holy Spirit, the quality and virtue of our Lord. Prophecy is a proclamation of the faith of the heart that is intended to comfort and edify. And this prophecy can occur only in the order established by the Holy Spirit signified in scriptures. Let's remember one unchanging principle established by God in scripture. A prophet and one who prophecies are people who speak the revelations of God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the difference between them is that a prophet is always one who prophesies, and one who prophesies is not always a prophet. Therefore, one who prophesies are called to obey the prophet so that they can prophesy in the spirit of the prophets. Therefore, the prophet as well as the one who prophesies are called to prophesy in proportion to the faith that God gave each. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Romans 12:6. The level of faith depends on three things. The measure of our knowledge of the teaching of Christ, the measure of our knowledge of the boundaries of our calling, and the measure of our dedication to our calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 31 to 33. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Take a look. Those who prophesy are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In these words, the order that expresses theocracy is comprised of the fact that those who prophesy know in what boundaries they must obey the prophets. This is also affirmed by, confirmed by a different place in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20-22 For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, Amen, to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Take a look, both are anointed, but only a prophet has one purpose and one who prophesies has another, but each must in proportion to their faith. 
Furthermore, priests were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to stand as priests before the face of the Lord. Priests, as you know, in our essence, is that substance in which occurs worship to God. It is a wise and a good heart. It is in the conscience. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23-24 So, worship in spirit and truth. If our heart does not have thumim, if we do not have the teaching of Jesus Christ, a person cannot worship in spirit and truth. If he has not grown, if he is not dedicated, then the anointing cannot be. Anointing is given when a person is prepared, when a person has knowledge, he is prepared. If he just puts on some kind of garments, and I watched um, on TV, my spouse had told me to watch, I saw some kind of tunic that a person put on and he wore a plaque and he went 20 meters into the ground because the wall of the temple um, itself is 20 meters into the ground and the temple was built under the wall in Israel and above is a theater where there is about 10,000 people and it has no relation to the temple itself it is Today, there is no such technology to build the temples as though they were built in a way where you put a rock on a rock and when you lift up the one rock, the rock that is placed underneath and above are both lifted up. Today, temples are built differently and does not coincide. What do you, and as I was watching this, what do you present for us? It is not 20 meters in the ground, but they wanted to show something in this program. And I think these, the Catholics wanted to, to show this. I do not think that the Jewish rabbis would have allowed this. Let us look further. Kings were anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to protect and judge the nation of God by the laws of righteousness. Looking at the virtue of a king in ourselves, we came to the conclusion that this king, in our essence, is our renewed thinking, which we renew with the spirit of our mind, which is the mind of Christ in our spirit. Revelation chapter 5 verses 8 through 10 Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. One of the originals says, and we will reign on earth as it is, and 
over our own land. If we cannot land over, our, if we cannot rule over our own essence, our land, if we cannot rule over it, we cannot reign in the thousand-year reign on earth. Going further, the leprous were anointed the oil of gladness or the oil of the Holy Spirit to be cleansed from their leprosy. Leprosy is an image of sin. The image of leprosy in our essence is our essence which is defiled by dead works. This is where we have uh, leprosy. We need to continually cleanse our conscience from our dead works and our own way of thinking. All of this defiles us. Scripture says in Hebrews, For if the God of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ called the conscience of man the eye of the body. The purity of our conscience will affect the purity of our body. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. This talks about why these dead works are in the conscience. What does it define? Where is this leprosy in? No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and Mammon. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 24. It turns out that this is dependence on the riches of the world. Our desire to become rich is leprosy in our conscience through which you must be cleansed with anointing of oil of gladness. Considering that the root of all evil is love for money or dependence on money, which defines the presence of leprosy, the purity of our eye in the subject of our conscience will depend on our ability to rule over money. In other words, a pure eye is a kind of love for God that is called to be expressed in ruling over money and the ability to not rely on money, but rely on God. The Nazarenes were anointed with the oil of gladness, or the oil of the Holy Spirit, to fulfill their purpose and calling as a Nazarite. The word Nazarene comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means to initiate, initiate and separate it, but we also refer to the word Nezer, which means industry, diadem, or crown, which refers to the Nazarene's hair braided in seven braids. As it is written, because the separation to God is on his head, all the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. And in this case, the word Nazarene, or as it is used in this verse, separation, in Hebrew it has a double meaning. First, this word referred to a prince that was dedicated to God, and second, this word signified a vine during the Sabbath which came to fruition. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, 
and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of it its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and your female servants, you hired men and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So according to the meaning of this, we know that the year of rest in the year of rest, the master of the vineyard stopped being its master. Because of this, he did not have the right to cut the vine so that it could bring more fruit in the future, although he could use its fruit with all the inhabitants and foreigners of the land, which pointed to the fact that the comfort of the land could occur only when it stops being our belonging and belongs to God. When it belongs to God, we don't need to cut anything anymore. It is when it is still in our belonging, we cut it so we can bring more fruit. But when it is in the belonging of God, that's it. We are completely dependent on God now. Now, what will He do? All, all that we will do will be blessed. In this manner, the meaning of being a Nazarene was to allow God to find comfort in our heart. On the other hand, it is our comfort in God. A vow of a Nazarene could be given by any person, man or woman, if he considered it necessary to devote his life to God for a certain time or for life. However, in exceptional cases, a person, even before birth, could be destined as a Naz could be destined for Nazareth, both by God and by his parents. And such well-known characters in Scripture dedicated to God in Nazareth before his their birth was Samson, who was dedicated. The angels, their parents were told he will be a Nazarene. Samuel was given over to Nazarene, and John the Baptist and Christ as well. All of these people carried, they did not cut their hair and they braided them in seven braids. Therefore, Christ was a Nazarene, and he, just as John the Baptist, as Samuel and Samson, his braid, his hair was braided in seven braids. Thus, Nazareth, as the holiness of the Lord, demonstrating above himself that the absolute authority of God became for those around him a living reminder of the power of God. And later, the Jews called Christianity a Nazarene heresy. Do you remember? This was in Acts 24, 5. Considering that in Christ Jesus every man called before God was born from God to be a Nazarene, it follows that a man must be ready to fulfill any kind of service to which God will call him through the authority established by God, established by God in his house, the Lord's anointed, sent to watch his flock. And this calling that we are called to will be anointed if we give ourselves over to service to God. And the appearance of a Nazarene was possible to distinguish from afar through the hair braided in seven braids, which pointed to the vocation and ability of man to be fertilized by the seed of the Word of God, because for a man it was a shame, because this was an image of a woman, and he carried these braids, he carried this kind of hair. But it is the ability 
to accept the voice of God and appointed to the readiness of man to confess the faith of his heart. Thus, in Nazareth, both the functions of the female and male were combined, which was a means for achieving peace of both sides, God and man and man and God. And therefore, the presence of immaculate joy in a person is the realization of his involvement to the divine nature through the evidence in his heart that his name is written in heaven. He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And so, to sum this up, it follows that it is possible to have unearthly joy if we have these five components. Does the oil of gladness anoint anointing with the oil of gladness the proclamation the faith of our hearts that we can speak the prophecy of the Lord? Are we anointed with the oil of gladness to be priests before the face of the Lord so we can worship in spirit and truth? Does the oil of gladness anoint our renewed mind to protect the law of righteousness in our essence? And does the oil of gladness anoint our conscience so that we can be cleansed from dead works, which is the leprosy of sin? And does the oil of gladness anoint our Nazarenes so that God be comforted in us? I apologize that we have gone a little past our time. May we bow our heads, our knees, for whom it is possible. May the Lord bless us in our prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we bow to you in this blessed place, and we thank you for your word that you have gifted us today, in which you again and again have revealed your intentions in relation to us. You desire to clothe us into the new man, to the kingdom of heaven, to clothe us in the armor of light, that which your saints of all times strived for and could not reach, could not receive without us. We consider that we have come to the end times. You have revealed for us the signs of the end times and have unveiled for us how to take off our old man with his works, how to dive to our nation, to our household and to our corrupt desires so that we can be renewed with the spirit of our mind and begin the process of being clothed into the new man, proclaiming the unseen as seen. We have accepted this promise which you have unveiled in this time. We have accepted it as the greatest riches, our unfading inheritance. And we thank you for this inheritance, for these riches. And we ask you, Lord, for your anointing power can be present in our proclamations, confessions, in our actions, in our 
чтобы garments so that you can be glorified through us and so that we can be a light for the earth as well as a lamp in your house may your mercy be blessed across the nation the whole earth we bow down before you almighty father father son holy spirit amen our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the hand of the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Amen. and now let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever Amen